You spook easily, Starling? Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, spins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. But he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. So close to the way you're gonna catch him, do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lecter's missing and armed. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? Hello, Clarice. Oh, my God. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to Oscar Wilde. <laughs> I'm so horrified. <laughs> a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rookrout, not Dr. Lecter. And I'm Sophia Simonello, not Clary Starling, even though I would love to be her. <laughs> and today we'll be talking all about The Silence of the Lambs. As you can tell, hopefully, it is having its 30th anniversary. It was released on valentine's day which is not only an early release date but such an odd one for this movie i love that it came out on valentine's day this is like my type of valentine's day movie (laughs) but yeah definitely interesting in the conversation that we'll have about the oscars and just the long tail that this movie had and we mentioned it before this is one of the big five winners only three have done that in history we've covered One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest before, and I think now that we're doing this, we have to do It Happened One Night in the near future. Yeah, absolutely, and we will get to the big five and what that meant Mm -hmm. for Silence of the Lambs, but if you haven't seen Silence of the Lambs or if you need a quick refresher, an IMDb description here, a young FBI cadet must receive the help of an incarcerated and manipulative cannibal killer to help catch another serial killer, a madman who skins his victims. It was directed by Jonathan Demme, and it was based on a book by Thomas Harris. The screenplay was written by Ted Talley. It famously stars Anthony Hopkins, Jodie Foster, Ted Levine, and others. And it was a box office juggernaut. It made $272.7 million worldwide on a $19 million budget. Starting out, we're going to spoil it. So if you haven't seen this, go watch it. I don't think it's streaming anywhere, so you have to rent it, but totally worth it. I think I said on the last pod, this was my second viewing of the film. I had only seen it once before last year, last October, when we talked about it on a couple horror pods, and it was kind of unparalleled. One of my favorite horror movies, and it was fun to revisit. It's just so well made, so many great details throughout, and I think every facet of this film is done so so well and that's why it was such a box office success and speaking of that this is technically a sequel and those don't really do well in terms of oscars the only other sequels to win best picture are the godfather part two and then the lord of the rings the return of the king the 
original to this film was called Manhunter, which was released in 1986. Did not do well. Huge flop. But it was taken over. We'll get into some fun facts and production details. But when this was taken on, it was done differently and soaring success. It is one of my favorite best picture wins of all time. I think it's iconic. It's bold. I can't believe the Academy actually did it. And I have such a long history, I feel, with this movie. As a kid, it was one of those where I would go to Blockbuster and see the tape, like the VHS, Mm -hmm. the poster on the tape, and I would see it at home, and I was always so scared of it. Just like Jodie Foster's face with the uh, moth over her Mm -hmm. mouth. It just terrified me as a kid, but I was also so intrigued. And for me, when I finally saw it as like an early teenager... I remember thinking, this is the best movie I've ever seen. It was just unlike anything else. It felt so forbidden and wrong, but so beautiful. And it had so much just humanity in it. And I think Mm -hmm. it's just impeccably directed by Jonathan Demme. Mm -hmm. And it holds up and is better every time you watch it, which is something that you cannot say for a lot of movies, I feel. It was still really good, but I feel like some of the intensity and like the twists toward the end were a little lost on me a second time around. Was it never spoiled for you in all your years of never seeing it? Like the end? The end being... The end being like the basement scene. No. Oh my god. Okay. Because the first time you do see that is so much. Just it's so scary and the night vision goggles and everything. I just remember that clear as day the first time I saw it just being totally absolutely horrified. I'm trying to remember because I've seen like very short snippets in the past Mm -hmm. and I feel like one might have been a night vision shot Uh but I didn't know what was going on and I don't think that impacted my viewing. That on my first viewing was just I couldn't move and when when he reaches out that is just like the most uncomfortable I felt in a movie in a long time so yeah it's it's so impressive knowing that it's coming I think I was looking for other elements like Mm -hmm. how the camera moved and what it was focusing on yeah I think you find different things to pay attention to each time and different things that you might not have noticed the first time. And I think, too, once we get into fun trivia and production facts, it'll just light up for everyone listening even more because there really was so much that went into it and so many cool little details that are there. So do you think that this is the best serial killer movie? Ooh, What are some other big ones for you? So... I think just the other big ones I think of always are Fincher. So Zodiac and Seven. Mm -hmm. Those are two really good ones. I think if we're thinking back further, we can think of M. That's a really good one. Those are the ones that really stick out to me as being like top tier serial killer films. Okay. Yeah, Seven is definitely up there for me. Are you considering slashers to be in there too? Like Halloween or not really? Not really. I think I'm thinking of it more in the like psychological thriller realm. Okay. So I know a lot of people think of this as a horror movie. I personally don't. I see it more as a psychological thriller with horror elements. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't include like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or any of those, okay. but you certainly can if you want to. Um, no, we can stay away from those, but I will mention like South Korean psychological horror thriller mm-hmm. films. Definitely great. I Saw the Devil, I think, is really good. I rewatched that a few months ago. 
But yeah, I would say seven and this are like very superior. Yeah, I agree. I would say like seven and Zodiac, both of those I really love too. What I really find just completely groundbreaking here is that it's a story about a woman more than a story about a serial killer. Mm -hmm. It just has two serial killers in it who are very compelling characters that we'll get to. But I think David Fincher in his movies, a lot of times they're very cold, very procedural, very violent in a way that doesn't have the empathy that Jonathan Demme's movies do, and especially this Mm -hmm. one. So I personally think that if you're looking for a serial killer movie and you like true crime like this is this is the one this is the best i think that's what it does so well is that or maybe compared to other serial killer movies but also aligning it with seven is that they focus on the mindset of the people following the serial killer not the serial killer themselves Mm -hmm. which can come off a little aloof or silly depending on how it's depicted but Definitely taking Clarice's POV here is, I think, what gives it so much personality and strength. Something I ran into doing research for this film and history, it's kind of a fun fact, but Siskel and Ebert used to be a huge critic duo, and they have an interview out of them debating this movie, and I feel like we are Siskel and Ebert sometimes. (laughs) I had the same thought when I was watching this interview and I was just like, wow, they were on to something here. They stay very like friendly, even though at the same time they're like, no, 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 you're just wrong. No, 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 thank you. And here, like I definitely agreed with Ebert, but we we really do have those moments where we're like Siskel and Ebert in that way, the dynamic. (laughs) What one thing that's so funny that they do that we should consider is like years later, they kind of roast each other for their bad opinions. Oh my god. (laughs) So if you don't know, definitely Google or YouTube Siskel Ebert Silence of the Lambs. Mm -hmm. It's a great like two minute video, but Siskel really hated this movie and Ebert loved it. And this was us with broadcast news. In Nashville. (laughs) Yes. So this was just kind of funny. It is really funny. When I watched it, I kept thinking, I was like, oh my God, I am like, if I have to be the Ebert again. No, I, I did like this. We are not okay, good. them on this movie. So <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> I was like really worried. Like, oh my God, what if he watches it a second time and it's just no longer good to him? <laughs> One thing that Siskel said that I, I thought about was that he said that he didn't think it was a good depiction of a serial killer. He didn't think it was a top tier serial killer movie, which was why I put that question in the outline. And what I found when I was researching the movie was that Jonathan Demme didn't want to make a serial killer movie at all. He was like Mm -hmm. totally repelled originally by the content. And then, you know, he was encouraged to read the book and read the script again. And he's like, okay, yes, this is about a woman, a strong woman character. I want to make the movie. And I think that Mm -hmm. his, his vision and his, idea that he didn't want to make a serial killer movie actually is what makes the movie so strong yeah let's talk about the big five again go over some of the wins for us and its other nominations of course so it won the big five picture director for demi actor for hopkins actress for foster and adapted screenplay for ted tally it was also nominated for best sound It lost to Terminator 2 and also nominated for Best Editing, but it lost to JFK. Let's go through category by category here for the Big Five. But I think first, do you think it was deserving of the Big Five? 
Only three movies in history have gotten this honor. I think it is deserving. The three don't equate at all. So there's Mm -hmm. no like formula for Mm -hmm. what makes a big five picture. But I think it does stand alone. I think it's well-deserved. We'll ask our quintessential question at the end. And I think my answer will be one that I don't normally give. So starting with picture, we'll go through the nominees here just for these five categories and see if we agree. And I think you'll probably agree too, but we can't This is so exciting. I love when we agree. (laughs) (laughs) The other nominees for picture were Beauty and the Beast, which was Disney's first animated best picture nomination. Yeah. Well, we talked about last week. When I saw Mm -hmm. it come up, I was like, oh my God, perfect timing. And then Bugsy, JFK, and The Prince of Tides, none of which I have seen. I've seen Beauty and the Beast, but the other three I haven't. I mean... I would say as a group, it's a weaker collection of Best Picture nominees, in my opinion. And this being Disney's first animated Best Picture nomination, to me, makes it so much more unlikely that they would have won over Silence of the Lambs. So this Mm -hmm. is a clear winner for me. The fun note here is that Bugsy is directed by Barry Levinson, whose son, dot, 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 is Sam Levinson, who made Euphoria and Malcolm and Marie. So a huge name and kind of funny that it sticks in the family. Yeah. And I feel like Sam Levinson is kind of influenced by Demi. The way he treats his characters is kind of similar. Barry Levinson was nominated for Bugsy, Oliver Stone for JFK. But then we had John Singleton. He got in for Boys in the Hood, who is still, I believe, like one of the youngest nominees for Best Director. And then Ridley Scott got in for Thelma and Louise, which will come up later when we talk about Best Actress. But again, like I mentioned before, Demi's direction here is just, it's brilliant. And when I think about it, I want to cry just how perfect the direction is. I've seen none of these, so I will have to agree that his is the best. You haven't seen (laughs) Thelma and Louise? No. (laughs) Oh, you should watch it. I think you would probably like it. Yeah, these are all big names, or at least Boys in the Hood and Thelma and Louise, which weren't in pictures. So mm-hmm. those are two that are on my watch list for sure. So going into actor, we have carryovers here as well from Bugsy. Warren Beatty was nominated, and then Nick Nolte from The Prince of Tides. We also have Robert De Niro from Cape Fear and Robin Williams from The Fisher King. The Robert De Niro Cape Fear nomination is funny because... It's not completely similar to Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs, but he is playing like a very scary criminal in the movie, and he's pretty good in it. Cape Fear is like lower tier Scorsese for me, but it's still a good performance. So here's where we get into category fraud. What's interesting is Anthony Hopkins still stands at the second shortest ever Best Actor performance to win. He was only in 21% of this movie with under 25 minutes of screen time. Should he have been in supporting, do you think? So this one's hard. I will say that this type of category fraud doesn't bother me as much as when it's Mm -hmm. a lead actor in the supporting category. I think what's interesting here is that despite having such a small percentage of screen time, his presence is known and felt the entire movie. Like even when he's not on screen, most of the time people are talking about him or thinking about him and you can just feel the weight of his performance on the entire film so i feel like yes i guess it is category fraud but it doesn't bother me because conceptually he feels like a lead character 
So I'm sure we could make a list of movies where the lead actress, which has so much more time, Jodie Foster was in this for 56 minutes, which accounts to 47% of the total running time, where she ends up lead and a performance like Anthony Hopkins gives with 21% ends up in supporting. And if that were to have been flopped, we would call that terrible category fraud and be Mm -hmm. so upset. Yeah. So it's interesting these dynamics where we allow it this time. Yeah. <laughs> because if you had to pinpoint one character, you're only allowed one character, who is the standout in Sounds of the Lambs? For me, it's Clarice, but it's it's okay. hard. I feel like for people who haven't seen the movie, they would say Hannibal Lecter. Absolutely. So, I agree with that. And I feel like part of that is like because of, you know, there's a show Hannibal and then Hannibal the movie that came after, mm-hmm. like... He really is this iconic movie villain. He's on like the AFI list of greatest villains of all time. And so much of that is due to Hopkins and his performance here. It is just like, it's, it's really, really good. I think I would care about the category fraud more if, I know this is unfair, but like if it was a performance I didn't like, or if I was really rooting for someone else in Mm -hmm. the category or didn't like the film as much, but here I'm just like, give it all the awards. I don't care which ones they are. Just hand them over. (laughs) (laughs) And I think he's such a presence because the book and the series all revolve around him. And only a couple of the books revolve around Clarice or Clarice and Lecter's relationship. So I think that's also interesting that he's in a way a standout, but he's in this one way less. So moving on to Best Actress. So Jodie Foster, this was her second win in three years. She had already won for The Accused in 1988. She was up against Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, both for Thelma and Louise, Laura Dern for Rambling Rose, and Bette Midler for For the Boys, which is a hilarious nomination, in my opinion. (laughs) One thing that I think is interesting here is that a lot of male film critics, which is obviously the majority of critics at the time, Mm -hmm. were not really accepting of the radical feminism of Thelma and Louise, but they could accept... Jodie Foster's feminism because she kind of works within the system and follows the rules but does it in a way that is just more palatable and acceptable to men which I just think is an interesting thing to think about when you're looking at these performances what I will say though is Jodie Foster of course like deserved to win one of my favorite actresses I think that even though she has two Oscars, she's somehow underrated, which is just, yeah. it just speaks more to the type of actress she is, the type of person she is, the type of roles that she pursues, and this really great career that she's had, you know, directing, acting, and I just love her in this movie so much. I guess before researching this, I didn't really know she had two Academy Awards, which is a huge honor, and the fact that they came so close together. Have you seen the recent Actors on Actors video that she did with Anthony Hopkins? Yeah, I just watched it yesterday. It was really delightful. It was great, yeah. They talk about both of the roles, Anthony with the father and Jodie with the Mauritanian. But Jodie says, which I thought was really, really interesting, that she's an actor because it's part of her family's trade. But she always wanted to direct. And I really recommend you go watch this video More so the second half, which focuses on the Silence of the Lambs. And then she goes into talking about how she didn't see any female directors, but she really wanted to do it. And once she saw it in a television episode she was in, she was like gung-ho about it. And she's directed so many movies now, and 
it's so refreshing to see how genuine she is in her conversation mm-hmm. and that, you know, she, she's an actress, but she doesn't like feel like she is. There's just this like aura around her that I really respond to. She doesn't feel like this like showboating movie star. She just very mm-hmm. much feels like a regular person with an immense amount of talent. And that is just so rare. Like I can't think of that many other actors who have that. Yeah, I totally agree. We will talk more about Jody when we go to specific scenes and specific parts of the movie where Clarice really stands out. And then lastly, we have screenplay. The other nominees were Europa, Fried Green Tomatoes, JFK, and The Prince of Tides. <laughs> have you seen any of these? Like Fried Green Tomatoes or Europa? I don't think so. Fried Green Tomatoes is pretty good, but it is kind of surprising it got nominated. <laughs> Well, that just goes along with the like wacky screenplay that they'll nominate sometimes that doesn't yeah. really fit in a way. And I will say too, for The Prince of Tides, so that was a huge book at the time. Pat Conroy was nominated, um, the author of the book, for writing the screenplay. I will say the movie is not as good as the book. If you're interested, okay. if you have to pick between the book or the movie, pick the book. Pat Conroy's writing is just so beautiful. But Barbara Streisand, in directing Prince of Tides, she chooses, I think, some other elements of the story that she wants to spend more time on that I didn't really connect to as much. So it definitely is an interesting case, though. You know, Prince of Tides had tons of nominations, but Barbara missed in Best Director, which, again, is this, you know, story yeah. we hear all the time. So <laughs> unfortunately, but not surprised. yeah, that's an interesting one, too, if you do want to look at this year in Oscar history. Do you think there were any snubs for Silence of the Lambs? I think off the bat, the score is so strong in this movie. And what I really liked about the opening credits is you see these huge names in stark writing. And the one that stuck out to me, besides Jonathan Demme, was Howard Shore. Another name, too, was Colleen Atwood. But Mm -hmm. Shore has so many good scores And it really plays an important part and gives you that ominous background that really amplifies everything that happens. The score is so good. And I was watching this feature on my Criterion DVD. It was an interview with him about creating the the score of the film. And Demi movies also just have such good music in them. We'll also get more into that. But he talks a lot about how, you know, he was tempted at times to make the score feel very suspenseful and feel like a horror movie score but he actually used the score as another way to get inside of the characters minds and show you how the characters are thinking so a specific example that he used was when Clarice near the very beginning sees all the clippings on the wall and it's you know Bill Skin's fifth and it's like pictures of the women's bodies of the victims and just Mm-hmm. The music, instead of trying to terrify the audience, it, it shows how Clarice is becoming curious about the case and how she has empathy for these these other women that she's set out to save, even though she doesn't quite know it yet in the story. Hmm. Interesting. Do you feel like there were other snubs? I think editing should have won. I think just the final sequence alone where yeah. it tricks you into thinking that Clarice is okay and that mm-hmm. they're going to catch Buffalo Bill, a.k.a. Jame Gum. And you're like, she shows up at the door and you're like, oh my God, no, she's all alone. And just the editing of that. And I think this movie is just such a tight, you know, hour 53. The pace is so good. I wouldn't cut anything out. The other big one, poor Ted Levine. <laughs> <laughs> what more did he have to do to get nominated for Best Supporting yeah. Actor? 
And his little dance that he did was not in the script. So I think that's points for him adding that to his character, which we will get to later on as well. But I think he does a fantastic job and really should have been nominated. It also just really affected the rest of his career. If you see Ted Levine in anything else, it's just like, oh no. It's what you think of, yeah. That voice, which I will try to make it through this podcast without doing. We will see how long that goes. But... (laughs) Yeah, he just, he is that character. Like, his voice is so deep and so specific. He's so tall. Like, it's just, he's so good. So good in that part. Fun fact about him, too, is that he was born in Ohio. Of course he was. So many Ohio facts. (laughs) Always. And I learned, too, so Mrs. Lippman's house, so the house where he is in the movie, I learned on the director's commentary that it was actually, that house was next door to his high school girlfriend's house in real life. Like, what? (laughs) Such a strange fact. That is crazy. Wow. He was meant to play James Gum. He sure was. (laughs) Have you ever met a person in life named James? When they first said it, I was like, wait, are they saying that right? Is it really James? James Gum. It It makes him so much scarier. I don't know why. (laughs) Like, if he was just James Gum, I'd be like, okay, it's like kind of weird. But James Gum. Right. Poor child. Yeah. The book goes into his childhood and like why he is the way he is a little bit more mm-hmm. than the movie does, but okay. doesn't get into the name. Hmm. That's a mystery. So talking about some of our favorite scenes, I think to me there are like standout three scenes. One of them being the first thing that we see, which is the training montage through the opening credits. This is where we first see Clarice Starling running through this obstacle course and then she's beckoned back to headquarters and we start to get the sense that she's surrounded by all of these men she's superior and the cinematography here really stands out there's one shot in particular of her in the elevator which is very iconic she's Mm -hmm. surrounded by these men in red shirts you know there are these wolves and she is the sheep Mm -hmm. which comes back later on Fun fact about that, just really quick, was that 1991, the year it came out, was the year of the sheep. That's so cool. I do love this training montage. I think it's a perfect way to start the film. And you really do kind of like feel both the gaze on her, but also you see how powerful she is. And one thing that I absolutely loved, I watched this interview with Jodie Foster through BFI, the British Film Institute, and... It was so just fascinating to me as someone who loves like mythology and fairy tales and things like that. But she said that for centuries, we've had these myths and stories of this prince or this, you know, Mm -hmm. strong young man and his country is suffering and he's sent off into the woods. And while he's in the woods, he meets all these like gnomes and demons and things he has to face and he endures all these terrible things and through self-reflection he realizes all these things he has to learn about himself and how he's going to save his people back from where he's originally from and then at the end once he cures his people he realizes that he will never be one of them again like he can he can never go home again because of what he's been through Mm -hmm. because of the lessons that he's learned and she realized all this when she was reading the script that this was the first role that she had encountered that fit that mold but was a woman and that before the role had only been young men doing this and she started thinking about you know what is female agency and what is it like to be a woman on this journey and what would she learn about herself so I think that that training montage just sets her up as just kind of this 
prince or like mythical figure who is out to save people and out on this journey of self-discovery. Wow, that's cool. What are some other scenes that you really love throughout the film? So I love when Clarice meets Hannibal for the first time. When I was younger watching it, like my first time watching, that scared me so badly. The way he's just standing still Mm -hmm. and the great production design when she has to walk through that labyrinth of the prison and then he's there and it's just, he's behind glass. The glass is so clean that it almost seems like he's right in front of her with no barrier. And just, it's so creepy and so unsettling. And you start to really feel what their relationship is like. And I think throughout the film, We can read it as Clarice kind of has three fathers. She has her real father whose death she's still struggling with, even though he died when she was a Mm -hmm. child. She has her kind of work or like standard mentor father figure in Jack Crawford, her boss. And then she has Hannibal, who's kind of like her father from hell. They have this relationship and this dynamic that's very like father-daughter in a really screwed up way that is Mm -hmm. very compelling to watch. And this is the scene that really starts all of that. She also mentions in the Actors on Actors video how they were deciding how Hannibal Lecter would be presented to her as he appears down this corridor. And they wanted him standing and not like sitting down or at the glass because that just adds to his persona of he could smell her coming. And that's I hate that so much. <laughs> just so creepy. So many minute details that maybe aren't shown. He knows what skin cream she wears, but he like smells <laughs> it from yesterday. Oh, like that's just so creepy. And you just get the idea of like his heightened senses, but also that she's just so vulnerable in this position. Mm-hmm. Like she's this rookie and she's out of her league, which completely yeah. adds to the story too. Another scene I wouldn't say like I love, but it's just, it's so scary and so well done is when Catherine Martin is kidnapped by Buffalo Bill. I think it comes at the perfect point of the movie. I recently watched the movie The Little Things on HBO and I'm not going (laughs) to spend a ton of time here, but it is not good. But it starts out with a ripoff of this scene, but it doesn't work because the timing isn't right and a lot of it is just wrong. But this scene is so good because who among us hasn't been in their car driving at night singing along to Tom Petty or some song that you know so well. And I feel like her just singing along to American Girl is just so good. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, we get our first really look at James Gum, Buffalo Bill, when he like just coaxes her into the back of his van. It is so scary. So a few things about this. So I know Brooke Smith, who plays Catherine, from Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. That is the one time I've seen her. <laughs> oh my God, that's so funny. And great friends with Ted Levine during production. They had like a really just, good good rapport, so which creepy. is hilarious. <laughs> which I guess maybe would make their acting scenes together better mm-hmm. if they were like on this closer wavelength, which is cool, but I would not have expected that. And then the other thing is that the way he coaxes her into his car was Ted Bundy's MO. Mm -hmm. He would always do this like act like he has a broken leg or something and need help carrying something into his car. And you're just like the whole time you can see it in her face, too. She's like, I should not be doing this. But she puts her groceries down, like go inside, go to your cat. And Mm -hmm. she does it. And it's like, oh, God. Oh my god, it's I know. It's so terrifying. One, cats have a big part in this movie, which 
I appreciate. But two, it works so well because, you know, Ted Bundy, that being the ruse that he used for all of his years, it works mm-hmm. because it, it challenges this idea and this this way that a lot of women are told to be, which is like, you need to be polite. You need to help people. In reality, it's like, no, take care of yourself. If someone is struggling and it's dark at night or et cetera, and you're alone, do not help them. They will be you gotta fine. to say no and leave. <laughs> Just run away. Oh. Well, and then we get the iconic quote too. Hey, are you about a size 14? <laughs> yeah. Oh. oh, so scary. So the next scene isn't, I would say, like rewatchable per se, but it's the iconic lotion in the basket scene. It's when Catherine is down in the hole in the ground where she's been trapped, which is based on a serial killer, Gary Heidnick, who held women prisoner in his basement in like a similar type of hole in the ground in Cleveland, yeah. Ohio. Well, he was raised in Cleveland. Oh, okay. I don't know where he ended up keeping people. I was like, no, God, again. <laughs> but yes, this like pit in a basement image comes from <sighs> that serial killer, which is terrifying. That is so scary. To round out Buffalo Bill's character, he also based him on Ed Gein, who was largely the inspiration behind Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Leatherface, which he's sewing this human skin together to make a face, and in this case, an entire body covering him. And I think a moment that really plays well is when Anthony Hopkins is in the ambulance and has like a fake face on, and he takes it off, which is one so scary but also plays into this Ed Gein and Buffalo Bill character mm-hmm. in grouping all of these serial killers together and Demi really didn't want to create this character off of one serial killer and I think that's why he's so over the top scary is mm-hmm. because there are components from multiple people and that definitely resonates and plays well so this scene of course has the iconic quote you know i won't i'm gonna refrain from doing the voice even though i really want to but (laughs) he says it rubs the lotion on its skin it does this whenever it's told and it's just so it's so scary just how he refers to her as it the whole time and he has another line there that we'll get to um, later on in another section about him yeah this really sticks out to me too in my mind and it's maybe not one of the best but i think the line is what makes it stand out and it's just so quotable. Well, like my mom and I will be at Target and she'll be like, put the lotion in the basket. <laughs> <laughs> like for, I know that's probably like so oh wrong, God. but I have, we've uh, like my family has quoted and my friends too. Like we quote this movie more often than we should. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Next scene for me that I really love is Hannibal's escape, which I just mentioned him in the ambulance, but this is a really long sequence where again there's a twist he gets out by masking himself as a victim and i think creating this angel carcass of one of the police officers is so brooding and to see it is great production value it really is and the production designer she was talking about she was really inspired by the paintings and drawings of francis bacon so if you look at some of his old pieces you can really see a lot of the inspiration that silence of the lambs took from those but this scene in particular she talked about when jonathan demi first walked in the room to see it and just like immediately turned around and just walked out he couldn't handle it (laughs) wow that's great (laughs) 
But this scene is so scary. And just like, I think the first time you watch it, you don't really know what's going on. And Mm -hmm. so many movies have taken from this as this like killer, you know, disguised as a victim or as a police officer or something like that so that he can escape. And I have to mention also that I realized that the guy whose face he takes looks like Joe Manchin. (laughs) And another part to the scene, the first... Third, I would say, is when he's in the cell and and he kills the security guards by you know bringing this pen back, which has kind of been a running bit in the movie. What I love so much is that it took so long, but that you know it did come back. And when they show the blood splattering across his face and body, and just the motion of his arm, even he's just so removed and calm and has that low heart rate. I think it all is just so well done. Right. And him, you know, the way that he escapes is like that he demands a second dinner and that he wants lamb chops. Ugh, just the nice touch there. It's just like, it's so yeah. good. And it, it begs the question, like, do you root for Hannibal in this movie at all? And it's, it's hard because you shouldn't, right? But then moments like that, you're like, oh, he's so clever and so smart. And you, you want to see what happens with this character and how he can escape. And I think, I mean, that's all again, credit to Anthony Hopkins here. I think you are rooting for him on some level. I think once you realize that he really isn't out to hurt Clarice, Mm -hmm. I think that humanizes him enough that once he escapes here, it's like, okay, great, which is really screwed up to think that way. Yeah, it is. But you're right. It's like, it's the fact that it's when Clarice says like that she's not worried because she knows that he would find it rude to go after her. And then later, of course, when he's like, the world is a better place with you in it. I mean, in the way they ended the movie on him pursuing Dr. Chilton, I think the original ending was to have them two in a room together and he had Chilton tied up Mm -hmm. and they said that was too dark. So I do like the actual ending Mm -hmm. where he's pursuing him and wanting to kill him. And I'm like, great, do it because this guy is a jerk. He is. Chilton is so smarmy and you're just like, fine. Like when he's like, I'm having an old friend for dinner and you know exactly what he's talking about. You're like, Yes, go get him. Like, this is great. (laughs) Such a perfect line to end it, too. It is. It's so good, and his delivery is perfect. Another scene that I really love and is just one of my favorite, I think, kind of understated scenes in any movie, it's when Clarice has almost solved the case, and she has this breakthrough when she goes to Frederica Bimmel's house, and she's up in her bedroom, and you just get this feel for what her intuition is like and, you know, why there should be more women in the FBI and she goes into her bedroom and it's probably like oh you know I had that music box you know I would know exactly where I would hide photos Hmm. if I had those types of photos and she's able to get those clues and see the Polaroids and that cat of course leads her into that other room where she's able to see that and have this breakthrough that he is making a woman's suit because she sees the cutouts on the dress Mm -hmm. that they're sewing so I think that scene is just it's the perfect case solving scene and they it allows mm-hmm. you to see even deeper into her character. Do you know why there were so many animals in her room? Like there were little figurines, the cat itself. If you look at multiple shots, I, I'm asking, mm-hmm. I'm, I don't know. Um, yeah. It was just an interesting choice. Probably more of like a feminine softer side, mm-hmm. I guess. I'm thinking back too to Promising Young Woman and all the details of 
like childlike things. And I think the animals mm-hmm. and the decor in her room can definitely be seen as more childlike, even though she was an adult woman. And I think just to show, you know, her innocence, her vulnerability in that situation of being coveted by this this guy and then being captured. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Another scene being the basement scene when Clarice heads to the actual house from the diner. And this is where you spoke about the editing earlier where we think it's the FBI agents at Buffalo Bill's house and not Clarice. But Mm -hmm. in a twist of fate, she's there talking to him and she goes in the house and he's looking for a card. And once she sees the moth flying, she's like, oh, crap. And (laughs) what really irks me every time I see this is when she goes down, finds Catherine in the pit and Catherine's like, get me out of here no don't leave me it's like girl we gotta kill this guy first (laughs) it's just like that's your response you like finally see somebody else i mean i i get it just in some regard but (laughs) i was like no he's gonna hear you like shh but i mean in that situation i can't tell anyone how they should be acting one thing too i love the shot when she's already gotten there and then you see the body of water like you see the river and then you see the railroad tracks and then they pan to the house it's just like a Mm -hmm. really great establishing shot sequence to show just how he's been dumping these bodies and how remote they are and just that she's so alone so in addition to the editing just knowing like nobody's gonna find you like oh no (laughs) you're all alone and i also think it's so creepy when so most of the time the way that it's shot jonathan demi does these beautiful close-ups of faces that just make you feel like these are real humans and you need to you know learn about their emotions and everything they're going through but through most of the film the way that buffalo bill is shot is we have that iconic shot from below from Catherine's perspective of him looking down into the pit Mm -hmm. but this is the first time we get this close-up of him like face to face and you just Mm -hmm. like another thing that he does that i thought was when she goes in she's like and she realizes it and she's like can I use your phone, please? (laughs) He has like all those index cards. He starts laughing at her and then all of the cards just like fall out of his hands in this like creepy, almost like dance like way. And he kind of like, he doesn't just turn around and run. He kind of like slithers like a snake, like hip first (laughs) down to the basement. And it is so scary. But then when they're down in the basement too, just the night vision, those goggles that he has on. And I love how they like really jack up the sound so you hear all the breathing you hear and feel how scared she is in that moment and then it's just it's all her instinct her intuition her training that has to pull through in the end and she pulls it off she gets him she rescues the princess like in the the fairy tale Jodie Foster alluded to at the beginning okay and the pacing here in the end is so important and is just done perfectly you know they have the slow-mo of him cocking the gun and her turning around Mm -hmm. and shooting him and the light coming in it's all just so memorable too yeah I also like this is gonna sound so crazy but so this house was for sale not that long ago Mm mm-hmm yeah if it was in a place like that I was close to or like that I would want to live in I would totally buy it Oh my God. <laughs> really? Yeah. Knowing this? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I could not do that. Well, like, I've always loved, like, old house basements. I don't know. Like, it's a really cool basement, despite all the stuff that's down there. I I wonder if they filled in the pit. I mean, 
or maybe that's not even real i don't think that so the pit i did read it was like an actual pit but they had like a door at the bottom that you could walk through so i think that's probably on a sound stage or something that okay. they made so she didn't have to be like lowered down into it or right. anything <laughs> okay. um bucket list items would be to go in the buffalo bill house and to go into the storage unit <laughs> at the beginning oh yeah and Just see all see the stuff in that's there. in there mm-hmm Interesting. One of my other favorite shots from the movie is the tracking shot. You mentioned how we perceive and see Bill through the camera and the tracking shot where it shows him from behind naked sitting in the chair working on his suit Mm -hmm. and then it pans to follow the dog I think is so iconic. It's really good. Okay, let's go into some quotes. What are some of your favorite? Because there are so many standouts here. What are some of your favorite quotes? So my favorite quotes, the Buffalo Bill ones, I've already mentioned, so I won't mention those again. But I think the most iconic, or one of them, is Hannibal Lecter's quote, a census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans, and the way he says, and a nice Chianti. And then he does the like little like <laughs> slither thing. Or, I can't do yeah. that. <laughs> I'm not going to make that noise. Yeah. <laughs> so creepy. I think another good quote, which kind of joins with best scenes, is when Hannibal and Clarice are having a conversation about her past and these screaming lambs. And Hannibal goes, well, Clarice, have the lambs stopped screaming? And this comes later, but this recalls this conversation that they have. Mm -hmm. You know, you assume she's stopped having this obsession over this nightmare, this dream that she's been having all her Mm -hmm. life and her father's death and takes you to the title of The Silence of the Lambs, which is just such a perfect title, which we've discussed on this podcast before, how important Mm -hmm. that can be. It really is. I love that. And I love when they're first having this conversation. There's this really beautiful moment. It kind of reminds me of in Get Out, Daniel Kaluuya actually does a really similar thing, but you can see like the trace of one tear starting in her eye, but she doesn't let Hmm. it out. It's this like very (laughs) subtle, brilliant moment of acting where you're like, oh my God, yeah, you don't want him to see your weakness at all. Even though like, Mm -hmm. I love that they keep in that at the beginning when she goes out to her car and you see her crying, you know, this is a really horrible emotional experience for her, but she also knows like she has a job to do and what she has to do to do it is not show him any emotion, not give him even more of an upper hand than he already has. There are definitely more quotes that I'm like missing or that I just don't want to say because they're vile. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fine. So let's get into our casting breakdown, talking all about potential people that these parts could have gone to. So originally, Ted Talley, the screenwriter, wanted Jodie Foster for the part, but When Demi was hired to direct, he actually wanted Michelle Pfeiffer. She was in Married to the Mob, which he directed a couple years before, but Michelle turned it down because she thought it was too dark. And similarly, Meg Ryan was offered the role, but she also thought it was too dark. Laura Dern was also considered, but the studio didn't think it would be bankable. How do you feel about Michelle Pfeiffer, Meg Ryan, and Laura Dern in comparison to Jodie Foster in the part? They're all just so different. And I think only Jodie here works really well. And they've all had such different careers, too. I mean, Meg Ryan is the one here, which is so, so different. Different is a kind way of putting it. I love Meg Ryan. Yeah, I love Meg Ryan, but she's way too girl next door. I think of the bunch, Laura Dern would maybe be the most believable. 
I think with Michelle Pfeiffer, it's hard because you just don't really believe her as this like rookie FBI trainee who is from yeah. West Virginia, like who has that accent. I just, she seems much more like New York or California. And Jodie Foster, I think she's such a physical actress. That's something that I feel like she doesn't get enough credit for that you really need for this role. And mm-hmm. we've talked about that before when we talked about her on Panic Room how great of a physical actress she is in in this part two she begged for the role like she really begged Mm. for it and met with ted talley met with demi she shared that story with demi that i talked about earlier but she also it was such an important role for her because she said she didn't want to play the victim again in a movie she said that there was just this healing process that she needed to go through and this growing up process to being Mm -hmm. this woman who saves women and she thought that this was the perfect part for her and she's just so eloquent when she talks about her roles that you just believe her and how mature she is and how relentless she is so I think she's just the perfect choice and this doesn't matter as much but I think height is an important consideration too Mm -hmm. in this role and at least I feel like Michelle and Laura are taller actresses and I think the height difference between really Jodi and all of the men Mm mm-hmm plays so well into her character too and how it just looks on screen Mm -hmm. so gene hackman bought the rights to the novel and he was going to direct it he wanted to play either hannibal or jack crawford but then apparently after he saw his oscar clip of himself in mississippi burning he decided he didn't want another violent role (laughs) so he left the project and they had to find a new director, which is how they got Demi. Another case of actors like not wanting a bad rep uh-huh. with their on-screen characters, which mm-hmm. brings me back to think of Al Pacino choosing Dick Tracy and not doing oh yeah Goodfellas mm-hmm. when it yep. just could have been a total success. Yes, exactly. Crazy. And the fact that Al Pacino was considered for the role of Hannibal Lecter is also just really funny. Can you imagine him doing like 90s Pacino voice? I think higher up on the list of potential Lecter actors were John Lithgow, which also is like, he's such a comedy actor. I don't know why this was so high up, but Sean Connery, which is maybe closer. Yeah, I think it's closer. He definitely would scare me. Like if I were Clarice, he, Sean Connery would terrify me, but still not right. Yeah, I think having James Bond behind him. Mm Mm-hmm changes his persona so much Mm -hmm. and also robert de niro was considered and my favorite daniel day lewis (laughs) who i don't think you would love so much if he had been hannibal lecter don't tempt me. you would have had (laughs) i think that i really would still love him i mean you saying you've seen this at like 14 and 15 so this role having stuck with you so long i think would have made a different impact on ddl's career but saying all that i don't think he fits in this role i think de niro is closer but definitely not ddl ddl is too dignified and handsome in that way i feel and like Mm -hmm. he could do it but i just don't one i would not want to know what type of method acting he would have to do to get into hannibal lecter's (laughs) character and he's played villains very well like Bill the Butcher and Daniel Plainview and people like that. But yeah, when mm-hmm. I think of Daniel Day-Lewis in the 90s, he's he's not right for the part. And that pains me to say. But Hopkins is like the perfect choice. He won in 93. Is that right for In the Name of the Father? Or So he didn't win for In the Name of the Father, but he was nominated. He actually turned down Philadelphia 
and that went to Tom Hanks because he was doing In the Name of the Father, and then Tom Hanks ended up winning the Oscar for Philadelphia. Another thing, so Jack Crawford, Clarice's boss in the movie, played by Scott Glenn, Michael Keaton, Mickey Rourke, and Kenneth Branagh were all considered for this role. Kenneth Branagh is funny because I just think of Tenet now. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't be opposed to him being in this movie, though. I think maybe this is an easier character to change a little bit because it's Mm -hmm. a little more supporting. And with Kenneth specifically, you know, he's had his directing since then and has done a mix of comedy and dramatic roles. So I think he's more versatile in something like this. I think Michael Keaton too, I feel like he's played, you know, the older cop and that's something that he could excel at. I think he also would have been good in this. One thing I think is good, and maybe this is just me not being alive when this came out and knowing about Scott Glenn is just like, I like that he's someone who isn't super well known to me, at least like he's not that Mm -hmm. famous. And I think that if he was a bigger actor, it would have been more about his relationship with Clarice, which is something that we just didn't need. It's actually a bigger Mm -hmm. part of the book that I'm glad they didn't go into in the movie. Another one that we have here, so the Roger Corman, who won an honorary Oscar in 2009, he actually plays the FBI director, and he's this pioneer of independent filmmaking, and he actually mentored filmmakers like Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, James Cameron, and, of course, Jonathan Demme. (laughs) Very cool. Mm -hmm. So some fun trivia. Something else Hopkins mentions in the Actors on Actors video is how he was really inspired by... Hal from 2001 Mm -hmm. in his diction, in his uh, accent in this role. So again, watch this clip. And I think his speech is just so chilling. In one scene, he mimics Clarice's West Virginia accent. And that like really bothered Jodie Foster. And it kind of took her out. And, you know, after the scene was done, she applauded him. The fact that that was just like not planned to and she didn't see it coming, I feel like mm-hmm. adds so much to the scene. So he was inspired by Hal from 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is so cool. The voice was a combination of Hal, Catherine Hepburn, and Truman Capote. Oh, wow. Just like <laughs> iconic voices and such a, just that combination. You can actually really hear it when you think about it. Now that you say Truman Capote and thinking of Philip Seymour Hoffman in Capote is like, I would not have put that behind Mm -hmm. Hannibal Lecter at all. So then another really interesting tidbit about Hopkins is that as a prisoner, they were planning to dress him up in a yellow or an orange jumpsuit. But then Hopkins came back and convinced Jonathan Demme and Colleen Atwood, the costume designer, that he should wear white because it's more clinical And it's more unsettling. And he really wanted to play off of people's fears of, of course, dentists and doctors (laughs) who wear their white coats. It's like, oh, God, no wonder people hate us all the time. You know, they come in and the first thing they say is, oh, I hate the dentist. It's like, great. Thank you. Nice to meet you, too. You should do your Hannibal voice next time and see what happens. (laughs) I'm sure they would respond very well to that. (laughs) So another fact here, the FBI cooperated fully with production, and it's because they thought it would be a good recruitment tool to hire female agents. I'm sure it worked, actually, too. And another fact that I thought was really interesting was that The Silence of the Lambs was actually inspired by a real-life relationship between the University of Washington criminology professor and profiler 
Robert Keppel, and serial killer Ted Bundy, who you mentioned earlier. And Bundy actually helped Keppel investigate the Green River serial killer in Washington. Oh, wow. Which is so, like, it's so scary when you think Hmm. about it. And anyone, if you're curious to learn more about Ted Bundy, there's this really great book that I read over the summer called The Stranger Beside Me. I cannot recommend it enough. Nice quick read, too, even though it's pretty long. So you mentioned the moth earlier and the poster. And what's really, really cool is that for the picture of the skull on the moth, they used a Dali portrait called Involuptus Mors, which if you zoom in close enough, I mean, this is very quintessential Dali, but the skull figure is actually made up of seven women contorted in different positions. Another one that I thought was just funny was that Martha Stewart briefly dated Anthony Hopkins during production and following the film's release, she ended her relationship with him because she just couldn't unsee him as Hannibal. (laughs) I have no idea how you could like stay with someone who is a serial killer, especially like Martha Stewart just makes it even funnier. (laughs) Especially like imagine you're Martha and you have this like perfect like cookie cutter life and you're like, you know, creating all these recipes and like home furnishings and the guy you're with is Hannibal Lecter. Wow, that's too funny. (laughs) Another fact that I thought was fascinating. So I mentioned the scene when Clarice goes to Frederica Bimmel's room. So one of our victims. There's a tune that's playing in her music box when she opens it. And it's the magic flute. And in that opera, that song is played by a music box, which magically protects the female protagonist from another character who covets her body by mesmerizing him and his henchmen so that they dance and sing in this blissful trance instead of capturing her. When you learn things like that, you're just like, wow, like how do they think of all of these things to include that just add so many layers to the movie? Did anything ever come of her finding the Polaroids though? So I think what we can assume too is like, remember how she says like, after talking to Lecter, we cover what we see every day and the idea mm-hmm. that his first victim was someone that he knew. So I think that we can guess, especially too, if we think about Polaroids come back later mm. in the basement, that maybe he took those those Polaroids. Ooh. Oh, wow. Okay. I don't think I had thought of that before. That's creepy. Great transition into Buffalo Bill, largely known as problematic in terms of his representation of trans people we talked about how he was based on these multiple serial killers and i've mentioned disclosure before it's a documentary on netflix it talks about the trans perspective and how they see representation through the history of cinema and they're largely negative depictions which is really disappointing on this film specifically there are two women that speak of the image of buffalo bill bianca lee comments on Clarice's line where she says there's no correlation between transsexualism and violence transsexuals are passive which she says is like largely reductive in what it's saying and maybe by putting that in the film it was trying not to relate serial killers to trans people but part of me thinks that they weren't consulting on the film and this performance and what was going into it part of it too is like we're doing this movie right now because it's the 30th anniversary and 30 years ago conversations about trans people are so different than they are now 
And Mm. if you read, I think, especially parts of the script that talk about being trans and surgery, they are so different from how you would ever see a script today about the trans experience or about trans people. So I think part of it is definitely, you know, the time and not knowing enough. And if you read Mm -hmm. a lot of like interviews too around it with like the people who are making the film at the time, the language that they use is messy. I'm going to say if we are thinking about how we would discuss this today. I mean, just the term transsexual is what they use in the movie, which we do not say today. Right. Another woman who comments in the film is Jen Richards, who had personal experience upon transitioning A friend had compared her situation to Buffalo Bill because that was like the only template she had for representation of a trans person. And it boils down to the fact that Buffalo Bill had, she quotes, literally appropriating the female form. And like you said, I think, you know, now in cinema and real life and politics and in many other aspects now, we have other representations and examples of this to look to and not just say Buffalo Bill. I think something that's interesting that Bianca starts out saying is that she really did like Silence of the Lambs. She doesn't totally discount it for this depiction. I think for me when I'm thinking about this character and when I'm thinking about how this role affects trans people, my first thing that I'm going to do is actually seek out trans film critics and trans film writers who have written about this movie and how they feel about it. And I read this really great conversation. It's just a transcript um, from these two critics who are working on a book, Willow McClay and Caden Mark Gardner, and the resources Body Talk Conversations on Transgender Cinema. And they discuss a lot of different movies, but the first one that they do is Silence of the Lambs. Well, I'm really interested to read this book that they're writing. I think that's phenomenal. And definitely go out and watch Disclosure on Netflix. So now on to our famous question. If you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? This is so hard because I really would just give it the big five. This really is the first one that we've talked about that has one best picture that I would also give best picture to. So would I. I think it's worthy of it. I'm glad that it won the big five, but mostly so that it won best picture. Yeah, there are so many. You just like can't choose... Like the actors, but I think that Jonathan Demme's direction really is just what stands out to me. It makes it brilliant. It makes it groundbreaking. It makes it a movie that people have copied now for 30 years and will continue to rip off, I'm sure, or be inspired by. And I think it's just, like I said earlier, one of the best Best Picture winners ever and definitely one of my favorite films of all time and absolutely essential viewing for the thriller genre for horror really just for everything yeah and i know it's february it's a weird time to watch a psychological thriller but it's never a bad time to watch the silence of the lambs oddly so i hope this conversation has enticed you to either watch it again or for the first time if you're not spoiler prone (laughs) so thank you for listening to our breakdown of the movie yeah i hope that you all enjoy it whether it's your first time watch or a rewatch. I'm sure it will be for many of you. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we're excited to do a listener's choice episode for Valentine's Day. So if you have any like romantic films or rom-coms that have been nominated for Oscars, can be any Oscar, it doesn't need to be Best Picture, let us know so that we can choose a movie to talk about. 
Yeah, there's some really good romantic or twisted Valentine's Day films. There are some good rom-coms that have been nominated, but I would love to hear of some ones that I haven't seen or just ones that don't normally get chosen for the quote-unquote like Valentine's Day viewing. So if you have any, write to us on Instagram or Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod or email us at OscarWildePod at gmail.com. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. Stay safe and wear your masks. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. Stay safe and wear your masks. Have the lamb stopped screaming? Doctor Lecter. Don't bother with the trace. I won't be on long enough. Where are you, Doctor Lecter? I have no plans to call on you, Clarice. The world's more interesting with you in it. So you take care now to extend me the same courtesy. You know I can't make that promise. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.